Real quick before we get started, don't forget to check the show notes for more information and a transcript. If you enjoyed this or other episodes, please do me a favor and leave a rating or review in your podcast app. I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 103. Surgery for ulcerative colitis is sometimes thought of as a last resort, but it is a viable treatment option that can give patients back their quality of life. For the 10 to 15% of people who go on to have surgery to treat ulcerative colitis, a colectomy with J-pouch creation is one option. The technical name is ileal pouch anal anastomosis, or IPAA. It's commonly called a J-pouch because the reservoir for holding stool that's created during the operation is usually in the shape of a J. Before making a decision about surgery, however, it's good to understand as much as possible about all the factors involved. Talking to other patients and getting their experiences is a great idea. Asking questions of a surgeon who cares for lots of people with J-pouches is also helpful. That's why I asked Dr. Vikram Reddy, who is Division Chief of Yale Medicine Colon and Rectal Surgery, to discuss J-pouches with me, including why patients have the surgery, what the common complications are, and what life looks like after recovery. Dr. Reddy, thank you so much for coming on about IBD to talk to me about J-pouches. Thank you for having me. It is a topic that's close to my heart because I live with a J-pouch. And I feel like I spend a lot of my time talking about J-pouches to other healthcare professionals and then also to patients and trying to help them if this is a journey that they're going to embark upon. Or once they have their J-pouch, trying to connect them with resources and get their questions answered because it's not a common thing and, and they run into issues and sometimes they don't know how to solve them themselves. So I'm glad to be opening up this discussion with you. First, for a level set, I wonder if you would tell us what a J-pouch actually is. So a J-pouch is an artificial uh, reservoir, like a rectum. Um, so for most patients, you know, or for most people, you have the colon and then you have the rectum. The colon absorbs water, the rectum kind of stores stool so that we can empty um, our rectum maybe once a day or twice a day. So for patients with ulcerative colitis, when we take out the whole colon and rectum, now we have to create an artificial reservoir where they can hang on to their stool so that they're not emptying it constantly. So the J-pouch is an artificial uh, reservoir that we create with small intestine and we hook it down to the anus. And usually with that, you know, patients are able to empty maybe about five, six times a day. And J-pouch is a very specialized surgery. It's done for very particular reasons. What are some of the reasons that someone might have a J-pouch surgery? So nowadays, the most common reason to have a J-pouch surgery is ulcerative colitis. Uh, the second reason that we also do J-pouches for is for patients who have polyposis. So any kind of condition where they have polyps throughout their entire colon and rectum. Um, now, some of these polyps can be cancer. They can also be benign. And we do it prophylactically. Uh, the most common condition, uh, polyposis condition is FAP. So it's usually for ulcerative colitis. So someone decides to have the surgery. I mean, it can be emergency or it can be something that's planned, I think, depending on why you're having it and th your general overall health. But what do people usually go through in terms of follow-up care? And I recognize that that 
might be a, a huge spectrum depending on so many different factors that you're going into the surgery, but what might be typical? So after you have the surgery, I usually tend to follow the patients at least initially every couple of months because it's a complete lifestyle change. Uh, they're going from, you know, if you're having it for emergency reasons, let's say you're having ulcerative colitis, bad ulcerative colitis, and you're going 10, 15, 20 times, and then you're transitioning to a J-pouch, patients are actually very happy. But let's say you had ulcerative colitis for a long time, and the reason you're going for a J-pouch is you get this thing called dysplasia, which is a precancerous lesion. Now, some of those patients, they're only going once a day, even though they have ulcerative colitis. But the reason they're having the surgery and having their entire colon and rectum removed is because they have this dysplasia. For those patients, all of a sudden, they're going from one bowel movement a day to five bowel movements a day, and that's a huge drastic change. So what I explain to patients is that having the J-pouch is sort of a life-altering or a life-changing situation that no one understands it better than the patient who's going through it. And sometimes just to walk through the process with them, you know, I tend to see them periodically, even, even you know, every two months, because they will notice little changes, little symptoms. And um, that's the initial, for the first year, we sort of do that. But after about a year, the patients know it much better than we do. They know what kind of diet they can eat to avoid complications. They know, you know, how to identify things such as pouchitis, which is an inflammation in your pouch that people commonly get. Uh, they also know when you get blockages, what foods trigger blockages. And later on, we actually follow them mainly to look at their pouch, make sure they don't develop anything like Crohn's disease, which is another inflammatory condition, or in patients who have dysplasia, to make sure that they don't get any dysplasia, which is another precancerous lesion that can form in any of the residual rectum that's left. And lastly, for patients with FAP who have J pouches, we also look inside their pouch to make sure they don't develop polyps. So those are the most common reasons we follow them. How common is it, though, to develop dysplasia or full-on cancer or polyps in a pouch after? And I'm talking about people with ulcerative colitis, not people with FAP. How common would it be to, to develop that after having the surgery? So for developing dysplasia and cancer, it's actually low. A long time ago, uh, not even so long ago, even now, if you have ulcerative colitis for more than 10 years, your risk of cancer in your colon and rectum, if you still have your colon and rectum, keeps going. Now, when we do the surgery, you know, a long time ago, what they used to do was they would strip the bottom area of the rectum and not take it out. And it's called a mucosectomy. And they would bring the pouch down and attach it down to the anus. They were doing that in the hopes that the bottom half where they stripped that area, the risk of cancer went down to zero. But what they realized is some of the glands actually go between the muscle cells. But one downside of that operation is that patients tended to have accidents. So now what we do is we call this the double staple technique where we divide the rectum right above that area, knowing fully well that maybe we're leaving about a centimeter of the rectal cuff, which has tissue which can turn cancerous. And the chance of it developing into cancer is actually very low. But if someone is coming to us because they've had ulcerative colitis, let's say for 20 years, and they have dysplasia or cancer somewhere else, the risk of developing cancer in that little segment that's left behind is, is sufficient enough that we do a scope. Even then, it's very low. It's less than 1%. But, you know, but we still, just to keep an eye on it, it's, uh, it's a simple procedure. We, you come in, you know, we take a look. You biopsy that area, and if you find anything, we cut it out, and then we can catch it before it turns to pain. 
I had my J pouch surgery in, in 1999. So I had the old way. <laughs> I had the, where they, they took out the mucosal layer. Um, yeah. I have a, a rectal stump is, yeah. is, uh, what my surgeon called it. And yeah. so I do get regular scopes. I am supposed to get them every year. I do my best. I'm going to say yeah. sometimes it goes maybe a few yeah. months longer than that. And especially during the pandemic, um, it has maybe been a little longer. Do you normally see people every year for a scope or or it, does it differ? Because I also had ulcerative colitis that was not well controlled for 10 years before my surgery. And would that make a difference if someone, as you were saying, someone who maybe was diagnosed and then had the surgery very quickly after. So for patients who were diagnosed and had the surgery very quickly after, sometimes, you know, we only do it once every two years. The data say, you know, one to two years. But for patients who had dysplasia, let's say you had your surgery for dysplasia or cancer, I would definitely say do it at least once a year. Now, saying that a lot of patients don't come back every year because, you know, they have a normal life, they have no blood, they have good quality of life. You know, you want to move on also. So, you know, we don't fault them if they don't come every year. But at least I say, at least do it every two years. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear because <laughs> sometimes it is difficult to work that that uh, pouchoscopy in every year. But I'm but I also had mine surgery because of dysplasia, so I know how important it is. So yeah. I definitely want to get get it done for my own peace of mind every so often. And one thing that I've encountered that I think some other patients encounter too is that when you are having a problem you don't really know who to go to all of the time. I think especially in that first couple of years, like you were saying that you follow patients for about a year. So what would you say are some of the things that maybe a patient should come to you for versus a situation that they should maybe see their gastroenterologist? And I think another thing to mention is, is that you shouldn't be breaking up with your gastroenterologist. Um, no. so, is, so let me know, what are some of the things that you that you think you might handle versus what a gastroenterologist might handle? It depends on how closely involved you are with the patient, but I tend to follow all my patients. Mm -hmm. And the main reason is the gastroenterologist is great if there is, let's say, for example, the biggest complications of the pouch operation are obstruction, pouchitis. Sometimes patients have difficulty getting pregnant, sexual dysfunction in men and women. But for all of these, you know, I think a surgeon who created the pouch or who knows enough about the pouch is able to address the patient issue. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say by accident, you know, you were diagnosed with ulcerative colitis when you really had Crohn's disease. And let's say, you know, we created a pouch. Now, you will have some pouch complications. And those pouch complications may require radical therapy, which I think is better with the gastroenterologist. Mm -hmm. So if there's any suspicion for Crohn's, 100%, you should be seeing the gastroenterologist and the surgeon. Now, the surgeon may take a back seat because most of, this, most of the issues with the pouch and Crohn's can be managed by the gastroenterologist. But if there's any structural problems like fistulas, if there's strictures, I think, I think a surgeon is better. So when you, do the, when you do the connection between the pouch and the anus, a lot of times patients do get a narrowing. And if they get a narrowing, the easiest thing is for the gastroenterologist to do a scope and do a balloon dilation. The problem with the dilation is that it keeps coming back. So if you have a stricture that keeps coming back, that can't be fixed, or you're going for dilations every couple of weeks, then you need to see a surgeon. So any complication that is not easily treated with medications or simple dilation, you need to see a surgeon. Uh, for the patients that I did the pouch on, I do follow them, um, unless they live so far away that it's it's very difficult for them to come in. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I also like to do the pachoscopy on our patients, but uh, but sometimes if they live far away and if their gastroenterologist knows how to manage a pouch, uh, I usually say just go have their scope um, and we just check in. Uh, and now with the video health and telehealth being more prevalent, it, it's actually much easier for those patients to check. Would you say that every pouch is different, each one that you create? Yeah. So every pouch is kind of different, even though we try to standardize it. You look at the textbooks, they'll say, you know, make a pouch 15 to 20 centimeters. So some surgeons pick 15, some pick 20, and they stick to it. And what you realize is it's never 15 centimeters or 20 centimeters. When you go in there, <laughs> when you operate, you know, you have a really tall guy, mm-hmm. you know, because of the narrow pelvis and the height, your pouch size is going to be different. You know, if you have mm-hmm. someone who is, you know, kind of kind of small, you know, the pouch size is going to be different. So for each person, the, the pouch size is configured for that person and for their reach down into the pelvis. Um, the way the pouch lies inside the pelvis is also different. We know that like pouchitis, for example, we have even identified genes which predisposes someone to pouchitis. So even the complications that patients get are unique to each person. And sometimes we, you know, we tell one person, do this, and the same thing doesn't work on the other patient. So I usually think they're all unique. That's so interesting. I have no idea what size mine is. I'm going yeah. <laughs> to ask my endoscopist if he can let me know. Complications. We talked about a few complications. I think the one that I hear most often from other patients is pouchitis. And then I also know that there can be something called cuffitis. You talked about strictures. Can we go through, are there any others? Can we go through what some of the other complications might be? Yeah. So let's talk about pouchitis and cuffitis. The last, the most other complications that can be handled are one, you know, after any surgery like this, especially if you're sick and you had the surgery, you can get hernias. That's one. Uh, Those can be easily fixed. Uh, The second complication, which we used to see a lot more of in the old days, was obstructions. So when you used to have a big incision and you had surgery done that way, we know that, you know, if you have a big incision and have the surgery done in an open fashion, the risk of an obstruction is slightly higher. Nowadays, we do them laparoscopically or some people do it robotically. When we do them, the risk of an obstruction is very low. Uh, The studies haven't really shown how big big of a difference the number is, but, you know, we see it. The other complication is, you know, you know, when we do this operation for young women, they have fertility issues. Uh, now, when we're doing them laparoscopically or robotically, we have seen less of that. But a lot of times, you know, whenever they have childbirth or when, whenever they're planning on childbirth, sometimes they have to see a specialist, a reproductive endocrinologist to help with to help with egg retrieval or to take down the scar tissue on the fallopian tubes. And then the last thing is, you know, for women, you know, when they're when they're having the baby, you know, the decision has to be made between a C-section and a vaginal delivery. Uh, if a baby is small, you know, vaginal delivery is okay. If, if the baby is slightly bigger, you know, you don't want to have a tear in the vagina, which then tears into the pouch and then creates a fish slug, which is very hard to fix. So we tend to push more towards C-sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we do C-sections, the other issue is sometimes small intestine gets stuck around the uterus and you can have an injury. So a lot of times, you know, um, I actually joke with all my uh, patients that uh, I hope that I'm in the operating room and I just get to play with the baby after the baby is born and <laughs> I don't have to do anything. And 99% of the case, you know, I, I just literally get to play with the baby and, and then I walk away. Um, but we're always there in the operating in the operating suite when they're having their C-section. So those are sort of the easy complications. 
And then you have the more difficult complications. So uh, the complications that I classify them into two groups. One that is a complication of the surgery itself. And then the second one is a complication of other disease processes with Alzheimer's or Crohn's disease. So the complications of the surgery itself. So when you do the surgery, what can sometimes end up happening is that both in men and women, you can accidentally, you know, incorporate another organ. In it. For example, in women, the back wall of the vagina sometimes gets stuck to the staple line, and then you can get a fistula. That is the most common complication that we see um, in women. And then the second complication is, you know, when we do the connections, because there's almost like 60, 70 centimeters of bowel connection that's made, one of those, if it doesn't heal well, then you get these fistulas because of the actual technical aspect. Now, let's say, you know, we do the surgery, everything comes out fine, and maybe a year later you start having problems, then we start suspecting Crohn's disease. If you obviously get Crohn's, then we get the gastroenterologist involved. We try to manage it with medications, but we still have to deal with the fistula. Uh, you know, it usually involves things like putting in cetons, doing flaps, or even doing things like pouch advancement to close up the fistula. Then, you know, long-term, the big complications are pouchitis and also cuffitis. So in some patients, you know, if you look at the actual literature, people can even leave up to three to four centimeters, which is about almost two inches of rectal tissue. So obviously, the more cuff that we leave behind, the higher the incidence of cuffitis. It's essentially ulcerative colitis left behind in the piece of rectum that's still in your body. So we like to leave the least amount possible, but sometimes, you know, either because of anatomy or something like that, you may end up leaving more than a centimeter or two centimeters, uh, which is about an inch. And if you do that, you can get inflammation in that area, you can get dysplasia in that area. And the way we manage it is we manage it with suppositories initially, calm that area down. And if you really can't calm it down, sometimes we actually go in there and strip that area out and actually advance your pouch. Um, and let's say we can't do it for whatever reason, we can't do it. Sometimes we have to go back on medications. Pouchitis is because you know, normally the body's anatomy, you know, the small intestine just transfers the stool from one area to another. It is not meant to hang on to, uh, to stool. So with the artificial rectum that we have created with the small intestine, we're forcing it to hang on to stool. And what we realize is that somehow it triggers an immune response within the walls of the small intestine with the stool staying in that area. And you get this thing called pouchitis. Uh, it's, e it's easily treated. Um, can give some antibiotics and within a day or two it goes away but in some patients they're not responsive and there are some certain conditions like someone who has a liver problem called primary sclerosing cholangitis they are prone to more pouchitis they're also prone to irritability within the pouch meaning instead of going five times a day they go like even six to ten times a day and it is because of the problem with the liver the same process that caused their ulcerative colitis can affect their liver and the bile ducts within the liver and those patients tend to have more problems so pouchitis is the biggest reason most of our patients call us. Do you normally manage the pouchitis or do you have the gastro or how does that work out usually? So some of our patients, we manage the pouchitis. Uh, and in a lot of, pro like, for example, like in the Cleveland Clinic, I think the gastroenterologists manage it. Um, obviously, I don't want to speak for them 100%, but, you know, for us, we do manage our patients with pouchitis. A lot of times get, the patients have both their gastroenterologist and uh, surgeon. Um, sometimes if the gastroenterologist knows very well how to manage it. Let's say, you know, they try the simple things, then sometimes we get involved. Or sometimes, you know, when we try the antibiotics and it doesn't work and you need to use any biologic therapy for managing pouchitis, we do get the gastroenterologist involved. So it goes both ways. 
sounds like it just depends on how severe it is or maybe how bothersome it is, that type of thing. I don't think I've ever heard before about the idea that the stool sitting in essentially part of your small intestine could be something that has an effect on the development of pouchitis. That then leads me as a patient with a J pouch to think maybe it's better for you to empty your pouch whenever you feel like there's something in it and to not hold it. Although when I had my surgery, I was told to in the beginning to try to hold it a little bit um, to sort of like stretch the pouch out and get it working. I don't know why exactly, but that's yeah. what I was told. <laughs> so is, is that your recommendation as well to your new patients? And what do you tell them about emptying? So after about two weeks, I actually tell them to hang on to, you know, not to empty at all. You know, try to hold it. I actually tell them, you know, if you have the urge to go, to just stand up and walk around and get distracted by something else. Uh, I tell family members to take the patient, you know, somewhere where they get distracted. You know, if they, let's say they, they, they like going to the mall. I tell them, take them to the mall and, you know, buy them something and distract them. Or for patients who can't do that, I actually even tell them, go sit on the toilet. Because if you're afraid that it's going to come out, go sit on the toilet, read a book, play on the iPhone, watch TV, do anything other than release the bowel. Mm -hmm. So even though, you know, we, we think that the stool staying in there and the bacteria within the stool may cause pachyotis, it doesn't happen in everyone. It happens in a mm -hmm. small percentage of patients. Okay. And, but we want to stretch the pouch because if you stretch the pouch, the capacity increases and patients return to somewhat of a normal life. people with J pouches go on to have more surgeries afterwards. And I've known people who've also had J pouch reconstructions. Um, can you talk a little bit maybe about some of those things that you've seen and uh, why someone might need to have, for instance, a, a reconstruction or what, what might make them a candidate for one? So the biggest reasons patients go for a pouch reconstruction is if there's any complication with the pouch. It can happen right you know, right away because of the surgery. So let's say, for example, you know, like I was talking about a pouch vaginal fistula. So let's say the pouch vaginal fistula is sort of higher up, where we can't go in through the anus and fix it, or we can't just advance the pouch and fix it for whatever reason, let's say it's higher. So sometimes we have to go back inside the belly and free up the vagina and the pouch, uh, close up the hole in the vagina. And we try to fix the hole in the vagina without having to redo the pouch, but sometimes we don't have a choice. Mm. Uh, just digging the pouch away from the vagina, for example, or just digging it away from the sacrum, which is the bone in the back, you know, you end up damaging the pouch. In those situations, we have to redo a pouch. So the most common reason to have a redo pouch surgery is because of the complications of the initial operation. And then the second reason is, you know, some patients who have a pouch for a long time, they can develop other complications, either narrowing in their pouch. Sometimes we have seen these strictures in the mid pouch or where the, you know, with the pouch, the small intestine comes into the pouch itself, you can get a narrowing. Now, anytime you get a narrowing in that area, we always worry about Crohn's. We make sure it's not Crohn's. And, but let's say it happens, you know, either bad luck or any reason, then sometimes we have to redo a pouch. Now, when we redo a pouch, we select the patients who are good candidates for it because a redo pouch is never as good mm -hmm. as the first pouch. And the reason it's not as good is not because the pouch is bad, but, you know, when we take out someone's pouch, you're losing, let's say I made a pouch, which is 20 centimeters for you. So to make the 20 centimeter pouch, you're using 40 mm -hmm. centimeters of intestine because it's folded on itself. So 
if you take out 40 centimeters of intestine, you're losing a foot and a half of your small intestine. Then you're recreating the pouch. So right off the bat, you're going to be worse than most patients who had the pouch for the first time because things move through yeah. much better. So what I tell patients who are going for a redo pouch is I tell them to be prepared. If they're going five times a day, I tell them to be prepared for anywhere from mm-hmm. seven to 10 bowel. And then, you know, it's easier to redo a pouch in a younger patient because they tend to tolerate the operation better. So let's say you're 75 and you've had a pouch for a long time. Let's say, let's say you have prostate cancer and had radiation and your mm-hmm. pouch is damaged and you come for a redo pouch. You may not be the best candidate for a redo pouch because to adapt to a big operation, to adapt to losing your bowel, having the radiation damage in that area, you may not be the best candidate and will have the best quality. Wow, well, this is, it's also complicated. And I know I had a second opinion, I actually went for a third opinion before I had my J-pouch surgery. What do you tell patients about getting second opinions or before they have surgery or before they seek any other kind of treatment in regards to their, their pouch? So I actually encourage them to get multiple opinions. Um, and, and here's the reason why. So, for example, you had it for dysplasia. So imagine, you know, imagine it's I'm a patient and, you know, I had ulcerative colitis, it's mild, I have a completely normal life, and someone found a precancerous lesion. And it's one little area that probably your gastroenterologist took it away. But because of the dysplasia as a marker of instability, they're saying you need to have surgery. And then you meet the surgeon for the first time. And the surgeon looks at you and says, I'm going to take out your entire colon and rectum. You're going to have a bag, temporary bag. And then after that, you're going to go five times a day. You have a one-year adjustment period. Yeah. That is a shock for most patients. And sometimes you need to hear it from multiple people mm. you know, to say, yes, this is the right operation. I know it is drastic, but I don't think we should remove just a little piece of your intestine. But saying that, I do tell patients, go and seek people who do a lot of pouches. Don't, don't go to, for example, a general surgeon who does colon stuff, but not does pouches, because then you may get a different answer mm-hmm. from them. They may say, well, maybe we'll just take out a part of your intestine. Um, so I do tell them to go for second opinions. Now, let's say you're coming to me because you're going to the bathroom like 20 times a day. I still them to tell them to go and seek a second opinion for a couple of reasons. One, in different centers, they have different clinical trials. And sometimes looking at you with a different set of eyes, someone might say, you know, maybe we should try this. I know you've tried this in the past. Let's try a combination of this. And if they can somehow diminish your symptoms and improve the quality of life, I think you should seek it out. What I tell patients is that, you know, with ulcerative colitis, you have a surgery, you don't have to be on medications, you don't have to be on anything. But the truth is, you know, it is a lifestyle changing surgery that, you know, I'm sure, you know, your family doesn't understand it unless they've had a pouch. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can go to the emergency room and, let's say for a cough, and most people there will not know, you know, anything about the pouch. Your gastroenterologist knows about it, and your surgeon knows about it, and you know about it. That's it. Yes, that's accurate. (laughs) And I've been asked, have you brought another bag with you so that if you need to change, because when you say J-pouch or that you've had surgery for your ulcerative colitis, they assume that you have an ileostomy. Yeah, it's, it's definitely all over the place. Some of the patients, we joke that we might want to print up a little card that explains what a J pouch is and just and hand it out in certain situations. Um, but at the same time, I'm so grateful for my J pouch. It has changed my life. I was that patient that was going 20 times a day. And I think about that a lot because going from going to the bathroom 20 times a day and being so sick 
going six times a day and feeling well most of the time, like that's fine. Like I'm good. But I think about those patients you're talking about that it is, it is a big shock for them and it is a drastic change in their life and, and how, how difficult that must be to deal with all of that mentally and physically. So we hope that our pouches are going to last a lifetime. (laughs) I actually had it said to me, I believe it was my OBGYN who told me, well, it's natural tissue. It shouldn't wear out, she said to me. I don't know how accurate that is, but we want them to last. So what can we do to keep them healthy and thinking about our our future and as we do get older and as the J-pouches age? So the big thing that I tell patients, um, and I advise them right away, is, you know, um, the only data that we have to prevent uh, pouchitis is using a probiotic. And the data is weak, but that is the only strong evidence that we have. So I tell them to do that. And then usually the other things are, you know, things like don't smoke, exercise. There's data to show that if you gain a lot of weight after you had your pouch surgery, because you have fat deposition in the area, it actually diminishes the pouch expansion. Mm. So I tell them that, you know, those are hard things to tell someone who has is struggling with 20 bowel movements a day who's skinny. Mm-hmm. And they don't see that. They never realize that after their pouch operation, I've seen people, I've seen kids who are skinny for their, um, for their, for their age. Um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I told them, you know, you're going to gain weight. You're going to become, you're, you're going to be normal. You're going to be like your peers. And they don't believe it at that po- moment. And then usually two years later, they come back and they're like, I cannot believe I'm back to, I'm back to my peer mm-hmm. level. Um, so we always tell them, don't, don't go overboard. Yeah. And in women, the other thing that I tell them is definitely, you know, focus on the Kegels. Pelvic floor is important mm-hmm. because, you know, women are prone to prolapse, um, especially if they have had big children, uh, if their pelvic floor is weak, if they have connective tissue disorders. So that is one thing that I do worry about long-term in women, because I've seen some women who have had pouch prolapses. And the surgery for pouch prolapse is not the same as rectal prolapse. Like in rectal prolapse, sometimes we can cut it out and do it just through the through the anus itself. For women, we tend to do it differently with pouches. We go in, we go, we have to go back in through the belly and kind of pull it up. So those are the things that I tell them to focus on. Uh, the pouches has can last their entire lifetime. Um, we have done these operations since 1985, not me personally, and I've inherited some patients who had their pouches done in 1985, and they seem to have a good quality of life. Uh, but the bigger thing is, you know, as, as people age, they get other issues, which can complicate a pouch. You might have patients that come to you and they don't know what to do because with ulcerative colitis, you have some choices available to you. What do you tell your patients who are seeking counsel about whether or not they should have J-pouch surgery? So for those patients, you know, especially if they've tried everything and despite trying everything, they're struggling. And I've seen some patients who have had to change their uh, their lifestyle because of their symptoms. You know, they're not able to work. I've seen some kids who are not able to go to school or they're getting homeschooled. If it is, if, if your ulcerative colitis is affecting your quality of life, that you're not able to live, I would say definitely pick a pouch. And even if you're pessimistic about the pouch, one, you know, once you have the pouch operation, you realize that you can get your life back. And what I always tell them is worst case, even if you have, Every complication that's known to mankind to happen to you with the pouch, you know, we can always take out the pouch and give you an LAostomy, worst case scenario, and you still have a good quality of life. So 
you know, I know surgery should be the last resort, but it should be in something that you consider. Dr. Reddy, thank you so much for all of your work in working with J-Pouch patients and ulcerative colitis patients and helping people to get a better quality of life. Talking to you has been so informative for me, even as a person who has a 21-year-old J-Pouch. I learned so much. Uh, thank you for coming on my show. Thank you for making the time. And I'm so glad that we can get this information out to people and so that they can learn more about J-Pouches and how it can be a great treatment option for people with ulcerative colitis. So thank you. No, thank you so much, Amber. I think this was great. Patients keep asking me, you know, where they can get more information about pouches. I'm going to refer them to your podcast. Hey, super listener. Thanks to Dr. Reddy for providing so much information about J-Pouches. One last thing that I will say is that if you are considering a J-Pouch, you may find it helpful to get an opinion from a pouch specialist like Dr. Reddy at an institution that specializes in IBD, such as Yale New Haven Health. Links to more information about the topics we discuss is in the show notes and on my episode 103 page on aboutibd.com. You can follow me across all social media as About IBD. If you want to leave me a voice message for use on a future show, you can contact me at speakpipe.com slash about IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. About IBD is a production of Malintel Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Trescott. Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. Oh, 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 oh,